When Congress passed the so-called bipartisan infrastructure law two years ago, it also strengthened by American requirements for construction projects. Now the final guidance is out from the White House on the BABA part of the law, Build American, Buy American. Analysis now from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish. Dan, you found that because of the new guidance that's been out about a month or so, it's a little bit more confusing about what construction contractors and buyers from the government side are supposed to do. So tell us what's going on. So, Tom, the final guidance... There was hope that it would clarify some of the points that came up in the proposed guidance, which was issued back in February. But I think many in reviewing the final guidance issued last month, which goes into effect October 23rd, will find that, in fact, it's more complicated. Because one of the central things that OMB did in the final guidance was indicate that this new section of the uniform guidance applicable to federal grants and cooperative agreements and other assistance agreements is not going to be a one-stop shop for recipients or construction contractors or subcontractors that are trying to figure out what their bi-American requirements are. They're going to have to go and look at agency guidance and other OMB guidance. So uh, OMB got a bunch of questions about things that weren't addressed in the proposed guidance. And by way of addressing those questions, they said, well, we issued this implementing guidance in a memo, M2211, and that memo is going to stay in place. That's why we're not addressing everything in the uniform guidance section 184. So it's not going to be possible for construction contractors just to look at the uniform guidance or recipients or awarding agencies to know what the requirements are. And these are complicated requirements. There are three different categories. Really, we're talking about all of the articles, materials, supplies that are going into a construction project that's funded by a grant or cooperative agreement. So it's manufactured products, construction materials, and iron or steel products, these three categories. And there are separate tests for each of the categories. And the final guidance made some changes in the margins about, you know, some of the standards for construction materials, added a few additional construction materials that'll fall into that category. There weren't major changes substantively, but the big changes were saying that OMB is going to keep the old guidance in place. Awarding agencies have to do more to issue additional guidance for their own programs and grants. If you're building a bridge under a grant, say your state, or you're doing a bridge under the transportation department, bridges have steel, that could have one requirement, but that requirement could be subtly different from, say, I don't know, another agency, HUD, say, granting housing improvements, which also might have steel in them, and HUD could have different guidance than transportation. Yes, each agency's own requirements and the types of materials that will go into their projects and the specifics of their programs will differ. One of the complexities is that some agencies had existing Buy America statutes. So the various DOT instrumentalities, the Federal Highway Administration, the Federal Transit Administration, already had some statutes that imposed Buy America requirements. And so that was one of the big questions for the proposed guidance. OMB said there are some areas where even those agencies with legacy Buy America requirements will have to follow the new guidance. There's a waiver process that's specified in the BABA Act and in the final guidance. Construction materials weren't covered under those old statutes. And so even the agencies that had Buy America requirements are going to have to incorporate new elements from the final guidance. Another major area of concern has been trade agreements. So the state and local governments aren't covered by the WTO GPA automatically, but many states have opted into trade agreements. 
And so one of the questions was, well, if there's a trade agreement that says we can't discriminate against the products of our trading partners, how is that going to factor into these Buy America requirements? And that was a topic that wasn't addressed in the proposed guidance at all. And that's one of the areas where OMB said, well, we had this initial implementing guidance that said you can seek a waiver based on public interest if you have a trade agreement that is in play. But that doesn't totally solve the problem. If you have to get a waiver every time you need to purchase something from a trading partner, that becomes very onerous. So far, there's a website that posts all the waivers that have gone through under the IIJA, and there have been a total of 35 waivers, and some of them are pending, haven't even been approved yet. So there's going to be a real issue if every instance where a trade agreement comes into play, they need a waiver. There are practical questions that have yet to play out. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. I imagine in some cases, the only sources available might be foreign. I mean, I-beams is generally a commodity that comes from Korean steel mills, Japanese steel mills, and I don't know where else. But they come from American steel mills, I think, still. But they're more expensive. And I wonder if the public interest would be the price. In other words, would a grant or cooperative agreement tolerate a 30% price differential because you bought it from a American supplier and you could have saved a lot of money getting the raw material from overseas and maybe the fabrication done locally. Right. So you're raising uh, some natural points, and they're in line with the way the guidance is set up. So the details of the waiver issue are one of the things that's actually addressed in the old memo, M2211, which, by the way, OMB said they're going to update the memo to keep it in place because they made some changes in the final guidance and they want the documents to be consistent. But there are three bases for waivers, and this is consistent with how it's handled under the FAR. You can get a waiver if the item is unavailable. You can get a waiver if there is public interest uh, in waiving the requirements, and you can get a waiver based on unreasonable cost. But the unreasonable cost waivers are pretty difficult to obtain. Really, all of them are pretty difficult to obtain. Traditionally, a, a federal awarding agency would be able to make some of their own determinations in this area. But now there is a Made in America office out of OMB that has to generally approve waivers, which adds additional scrutiny in granting them. Sure. And is there anything in any of these requirements for union labor? Because the administration has made no bones about the fact that it favors union over management. Federal government is no longer the referee here. It's on the side of unions. Those are more expensive shops. Is that addressed at all in the guidance? So not in this guidance, but you're right that labor doesn't get off the hook on this either. We spoke actually on a previous program about the Davis-Bacon and related act requirements. So between Davis-Bacon and the Build America, Buy America, both the labor and the materials and supplies are really regulated heavily going into these construction projects. And so as we've talked about, there's a lot of money in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, but companies that are signing on for new construction projects who may not have dealt with the federal government before are going to have a lot of things to get up to speed on in how they're approaching both their labor force and supply chain. So to bring this all around then, the people affected then are not so much federal procurement people because they're not actually doing the buying. This is money mostly from federal funding to other entities that actually do construction. So who has to be on their toes here and mind their P's and Q's? Is it the grant-making authorities in an agency? Say, I'm making a grant and you're going to build this bridge. If there is actually anything built like that under the infrastructure law, but let's presume there is one yes. somewhere, then it would be the grantor part of the agency 
that would have to get the proposal and ensure its compliance from the grantee. Is that basically who's affected here? So, yes, the state and local governments that are receiving grant funds will need to be aware of these rules. The awarding agencies also have some obligations under the rules. And construction contractors that will actually be performing the work on the ground need to know about these rules because it takes some advanced planning to be able to source these kinds of materials. And one important wrinkle that came out of the final guidance, so if a for-profit entity receives a grant itself or a more commonly a loan or loan guarantee, which is other forms of federal assistance. Under the Build America, Buy America Act and the final guidance, for-profit entities that are direct recipients of assistance aren't supposed to be covered automatically. However, there were nonprofits that raised their hands and said, well, this is going to put us at a disadvantage competing for funding against for-profit entities. And OMB came back and said, well, under the uniform guidance, There's authority for agencies to decide to apply the requirements to for-profit entities as well. And we've been hearing about instances where awarding agencies are imposing these requirements on for-profit entities, sometimes at the last minute. So that's got to be something that construction contractors are on the lookout for, that this requirement doesn't sneak into their award. Somehow I think the infrastructure is going to continue to crumble (laughs) under all of these rules before anyone builds anything. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the all-American Federal Drive on your made-in-China device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we uh, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams 
to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing. 
to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is 
having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.